Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. My name is Neil Morrison and I'm here for another action-packed show today in which we discuss the latest goings-on in the World Superbike Paddock and a little preview of the weeks ahead in MotoGP 2020. I'm glad to say that I'm joined by legendary World Superbike figurehead Stephen English of, uh, well, worldsuperbike.com fame, also racing lowdown. And uh, you may have noticed that I'm not Gordon Ritchie. Gordon is uh, currently engaged in some uh, extracurricular activities in the north of Spain. Uh, I'll not do my Scottish accent throughout, I think, and uh, probably earn a punch in the face from Gordon the next time I see him. But um, we're going to discuss everything that happened at uh, Aragon Doubleheader. We had there six races in two race weekends and a whole load of drama, a whole load of action to pick through. And, uh, well, Steve, before we get into that, I tuned in on Sunday to watch race two and the Super Bowl race, and I was waiting to hear your, your dulcet tones and your Irish pronunciation of Davies and JR, and I couldn't hear what was going on. Well, you must have really enjoyed it, though. It was Anthony Nelson on the broadcast instead. Uh, yeah, I had COVID symptoms on the Saturday night and had to get a COVID test. Didn't get the results in time to be able to work on Sunday. It all came back negative, but uh, better to be safe than sorry. So I had to sit in the hotel room and shouting at my laptop and uh, watching it from home. It was a bit of a strange one. COVID symptoms in that you were just feeling under the weather on Saturday? Yeah, just had a bit of a bit of a fever and a dodgy stomach, so pretty much par for the course for me. But uh, yeah, I had to get the test done anyway. Obviously, at this stage, everyone has to be very careful, and it was a bit unfortunate to miss out in the action on Sunday, especially whenever you're sitting in the hotel watching it and thinking like, "Oh, this is, this would be a good race to be commentating on." <laughs> I saw your Twitter feed on Sunday, and it was basically just the comments that you would be interjecting with, uh, basically written down and their uh, broadcast. So you were there in spirit whenever uh, Twitter was open watching the race. Tried to do something, but uh, definitely wasn't the same. <laughs> yeah, what what. A couple of races you missed out on, Steve, because, uh, well, historically, Aragon has been a bit of a Ducati track, it's safe to say. Charles Davies has won numerous times there. Um, Kawasaki wouldn't necessarily be a bad bike for the Aragon track, but with that massive long straight, um, you would say that Ducati was at an advantage. But in terms of the second race weekend that we had, I mean, Jonathan Ray basically, I mean, basically put his cards on the table and uh, went at it. I mean, it was a phenomenal showing from the world champion. Yeah, it was class. Even from Aragon 1, when we were on the broadcast, I was talking in terms of this is a track that suits the Ducati. It's got an advantage there with the long straights. Chaz has always gone really well there. Bautista was great last year. This weekend, we saw Rinaldi get onto the podium for the first time, win his first race. He was fast all the way through the weekend. So as far as I'm concerned, it's clearly a Ducati track. But it's also Jonathan Ray track. He's been on the podium every race there since he joined Kawasaki in 2015. So even though the Ducati might have a few more bullets, the cow is still going to be good around there. Alex Lowe's was actually quite happy with some of his times during the course of the weekends. But uh, obviously for Lowe's, big crash in Aragon 1 and then illness in Aragon 2 didn't really get a chance to show exactly what he could do. But the cow overall was clearly closer to the Ducati than I think people would have expected. But you can't be surprised when Jonathan Ray is winning races. I, I saw like some headlines where it's, you know, you can't write this script, Jonathan Ray wins again. And you're kind of there like, Johnny's won an awful lot of races. You know, this is a script that's quite plausible to uh, write. You know, we, uh, you look at different films and there's a lot more obscure 
things that happen during them rather than a five times world champion edging closer to a sixth world championship. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, well, we saw in the first race at Aragon too, Scott Redden crashing out of the action and uh, Michael Rubin Rinaldi scoring his first World Superbike race win. It looked as though Johnny was just content to, to come home in second and pick up 20 valuable points for his championship then. The same could be said for race two because it became clear after a couple of laps that Scott Redding was having some issues with tyre life and it was Rinaldi and Jonathan fighting at the front of the race. You thought, Johnny, you don't need to, to risk everything. You don't need to put it on the line. But there was just something about the way he was sitting behind Rinaldi where you just thought, he, this is coming. It was almost like a Marquez kind of stalking of, uh, of, the, of the leader. Yeah, well, that was the thing. When you were watching it, you thought of Mark at Hareth 1 this year where he's up into a safe second, but he still thinks he can win. So he pushes really hard, has a big crash. Johnny never really looked like having one of those big crashes, but he had a lot of little front-end slides. He had a lot of times where he was looking a little bit unsettled on the bike, so he was clearly pushing hard. But it was interesting to see how he was approaching the race because obviously for us, we get the Pirelli tire sheet and when they're sitting on the starting grid, you know what everyone's running. The second that you saw Reading was on the SCX tire, the Superpole race tire, you knew that he was going to have to push really hard at the start of the race, but also no matter what he did, it was going to be hard for him to manage the tire through the race. So whenever you see Scott really riding raggedly you know that there's no chance he's going to be able to stay with Johnny for the full race so it was pretty clear from very early in proceedings that it was going to be Rinaldi versus Ray and Redding was just only able to keep a watch in brief but Redding was the interesting story all the way through the weekend because as you said Neil the crash in race one it's the first real big mistake we've seen from Scott this year punished heavily for it as well because obviously Johnny's able to score a podium finish the gap now is 34 points in the championship and it's one of those situations where you look at 36, it, 36 points. So uh, even more impressive for Johnny then. But um, it's one of those situations where you look at it and you think this was a, a gamble not really worth taking. And we'll, we'll talk about Scott in a wee while and the factors that went into that decision. But uh, certainly whenever he lines up on the grid, he's trying to just find any sort of solution. Because over the two weekends in Aragon, he didn't really find any pace. He constantly had problems with front end grip. He was struggling throughout and never really gelled with the track, even though he won two races. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, Jonathan Ray, there's not really much left to say that hasn't already been said, but it's 36 points in hand now with, uh, well, three race weekends to go. I mean, nine races still left, obviously, but uh, I mean, in a pretty commanding position in terms of the championship. And the thing is, he's been here so often, he knows what to do. And with, well, Catalonia is obviously a bit of a... Uh, well, a bit of a red herring in the fact that Superbike hasn't raced there before. But, uh, I mean, it's not too bad at Magni Coeur. And just judging by his form this year, you know, he's a, he's a proven package everywhere we go. It's it's a pretty commanding position he's established himself in. And I imagine he would have bitten your hand off if you had said to him, coming into Aragon too, you'll leave here with a 36-point advantage. I think he would have bitten your hand off to leave level on points, never mind with an advantage, because he was expecting Aragon to be really tough. And that's where it was interesting to see how he approached the two race weekends, because he didn't make changes to the bike. He wanted to keep everything the same. In race one, in Aragon one, he struggled against Scott. He was out in front but uh, for a while, but once Scott hit the front, he knew he couldn't attack. So for race two, he went back in and he was talking to the team and he was basically demanding big changes to the bike and um, obviously he was able to win the Super Bowl race but then for race two the team just said no we're not changing anything you need to find something 
the bike's good. It's up to you. And uh, you can imagine what it must have felt like for Johnny to be told by the team, all the people that like he he loves in the paddock, all the team that respect him so much. And they basically put the challenge to him and they said, you need to get the job done. We've done our job. And Johnny went out and uh, dominated race two an hour ago and one, found six or seven seconds compared to the day before. He came back into the pits and he was celebrating and, and saying it was the best win he ever had. And then obviously into Aragon too. He carried that momentum forward. On the Friday afternoon, he did an 18-lap run in practice, so he had a full race distance under his belt. He was making sure he had all of his boxes ticked, whereas no one else was doing that. They were all still chasing their tails, trying to find some sort of solution. Whereas for Johnny and his side of the pit box, they just said, right, this is the bike we have. Figure out how to make it work as well as you can. And they kept the same setting for all of Aragon 1 and then for Aragon two they kept it for the two feature races they changed slightly for the super pole race just because they were using the scx tire but nothing major so we know that the krt kawasaki rosa white team is a brilliant slick operation however to say that to a, a five-time world champion after he's uh you know after his track record i mean is that a is that kind of normal tactic is that something normal for them to to say no the bike is fine get out there and ride it well this is the strength of Pariba. You know, I think it's easy for people to forget just how good a rider Reba was, but he was a 500 Grand Prix rider. It's not like he was a slouch. He knew, he knows exactly what it's like on a bike. He wasn't at Johnny's level in terms of outright talent or the results he was able to get, but Reba's been there, done it on the world stage, knows what a rider needs. And a rider needs trust, he needs confidence, and sometimes he needs a kicking. And uh, Reba's not afraid of doing that. And uh, this was one of those moments where Reba looked at Johnny and he, and he would have said to him with confidence, you can make the difference. Let's go out and get it done. And when Reba says something like that to Johnny, he's always reacted well to it. And that's where it's interesting when you look at other crew chiefs up and down the pit lane. You look at someone like Andrew Pitt working there with Michael Vandermark. He worked with Alex Lowe's in the past. He worked with Top Rack at one stage. He's worked with Krumanak or he's worked with lots of different riders over the last four or five years. And uh, Pitty's always, again former world champion so he's always able to put himself into the rider's mindset and say what the rider needs to hear and then you look at other engineering led crew chiefs that can only base it on the numbers they can only base it on well this is what the bike is doing and they can struggle to then really give the rider that ultimate feeling of this is what you need and that's where it can get interesting and that's where for me it got very interested in, in aragon too again because of scott redding Giovanni Krupe is an unbelievable engineer. He's probably the most trusted lieutenant in the superbike side of Ducati Corsa for Gigi Delenia. So he's unbelievable. But whenever push came to shove, they were making massive changes and didn't really find anything over the course of the race weekends. So that's where sometimes you do need to be able to sit your rider down and just say, you've got to just dance at what you brung. And I think for someone like Johnny, he's able to do that. He's able to adapt. He's able to do a really good job in different circumstances. And he's just got all that experience. Whenever you've been with the same team, the same basic bike, the same tires, same everything for six years, it really does give you a big advantage because suddenly you're able to look at it and say, okay, this is similar to what happened to us in Imola five years ago. Let's try and do what we did that weekend. It's not like you're trying to reinvent the wheel. Whereas for Scott, jumping into World Superbike for the first time, for obviously a rider like Rinaldi at the front for the first time, or you look at the Yamahas, Top Rack's on a new bike this year. It's a lot easier for them to make wholesale changes. Yeah, certainly. Sounds 
somewhat similar to you know one of the strengths of Davide Tarlazzi whenever he was in World Superbikes and later in MotoGP not afraid to tell a few home truths when they need to be told um, and sometimes that can serve as a bit of a motivator um, and maybe sometimes it might not work as we've seen literally with uh, laterally with uh, Andrea De Vizioso, but I digress anyway I'm going to come on to, uh, to Scott Redding um, but before that, I think it's important to look at uh, another rider at Ducati because this kind of felt like a bit of a breakthrough weekend for Mike and Ru- Michael Ruben Rinaldi. He's had a, a very strong season so far. He's really come on quite a lot since last year, I think. But this was the first time he was up there fighting for wins and you know three podium finishes from Aragon too. Uh, I saw that WorldSuperWhite.com was billing this as uh, the arrival of a new star. Would you go that far? I'm not sure I go that far, but I think we've looked at the rider that's going to be a factory Ducati rider next year because Rinaldi has made that big step forward. And in free practice three at the weekend, I was talking in terms of will he turn potential into podiums? And then by the time we lined up on the grid for race one, I was saying that, uh, you know, he's going to skip the podium and go straight to winning races. And that's exactly what he did. He lived up to the hype. He lived up to the expectation from Hareth onwards. He's been really good. He's been a top six rider all the way. He's had a lot of fourth place finishes, been in top fives. He's been challenging. And then this was the weekend where it all came together. And I think like the, the thing for Rinaldi is obviously he was fastest in free practice one, free practice two, free practice three, front row in Super Pole, and then three podiums. It wasn't a flash in the pan. This was genuine improvement, genuine steps being made. Obviously, whenever you've got back-to-back races at the same track, you can do that. But this shows Ducati what he's capable of. And I think... Also, this weekend showed something we haven't really seen from another Ducati rider other than their lead rider in the last couple of years because Chaz Davis hasn't suited the V4R. He's obviously been able to have so much success in World Superbikes. We know what Chaz can do whenever he's got the right bike underneath him, but he needs to adapt his style to the bike. Ducati need to adapt the bike to him, whereas they're able to look at it and say, well, actually, Rinaldi's on... Bautista's bike the exact same spec that Bautista finished last season with he's running pretty much the same settings and he's able to ride it in a similar way and get these kind of results so maybe they'll look at it and say maybe we don't have to turn things upside down just to keep Chaz and that's where it's going to get really interesting because last week on the show me and Gordo were talking about maybe Rinaldi needs another year at Go 11 another year with lots of support in that pit box more Ducati engineers and a little bit more seasoning. You keep Chaz for another year and you see what happens. But it'd be interesting to see whether Ducati still think that now on the basis of, well, Aragon, we were able to see it, that he could easily have won races. He wasn't afraid of fighting with Johnny. And, uh, you know, he could make things like the SEX tire work. He could do all the things that the other Ducati riders can't do because they're just too heavy. And the reason that he could make that tire work is that solely because of, because of weight, because of his stature? Well, it's definitely... A big part down to it, but it's also your riding style, it's how you're approaching it, and Rinaldi's looking at everything in a very relaxed way, because he's got nothing to lose, whereas the other riders are thinking, I've got a factory seat to lose, I've got a world championship to lose, I've got this, I've got that, there's all the things going against me, and Rinaldi's looking at it from, all I have to do is win a race, all I have to do is get in the podium, because he's not fighting for a championship, so he's he's playing with house money, so he's just able to be really aggressive, he's able to roll the dice, he's able to make it work. Whereas what we saw with Scott, for instance, was a rider that wasn't able to make it work, that basically had talked himself into a corner throughout the course of the weekend as well. And and for me, that was the biggest storyline from this weekend, even bigger than Rinaldi making his, his breakthrough, was that 
Scott never looked like a rider that was going to make that step this weekend. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's uh, it's certainly interesting because you look at, at Scott's weekend and he obviously crashed out of race one, which was very, very costly. But it's quite impressive that he did come to uh, well, come to the fore in the, the Super Bowl race on Sunday morning. Basically, Jonathan Ray's won every single Super Bowl race this year, I think. Yeah, and he's won he put, seven in a row. Exactly. And, you know, he, he's really suited to that short race format where he can make a blind and start and just hit the front and go at it basically but you know that was impressive that Reading was able to firstly disrupt that and then you know third place in race two it wasn't a disaster you know had he not crashed in, in race one you know third place is, is by no means a, a total write-off but there was a few things that you saw through the weekend where you just thought mm, maybe the the strain of the the championship fight and coming up against Ray's relentlessness is, is maybe starting to take a take effect yeah like I think all of us that have known Scott for a long time, all of us have always loved working with him and talking to him about different things that's going on because he doesn't hide. He doesn't try and make too many excuses. He doesn't try and he doesn't try and, and be too smart with the media. He just says what he thinks. Yeah, and what you see is what you get. And it's great. And that's exactly what you want. But the problem with that as well is he wears his heart in his sleeve and sometimes you can see why he's getting frustrated with things. You can see the things that are really bugging at him. And whenever he was in Moto2, it was always, all these riders are so much lighter than me. We're all on the same power from the same engines and there's no minimum weight and I'm being penalized in acceleration and top speed. Suddenly the weight limit came in, his final year in Moto2, in, uh, Moto2 he was able to fight for a world championship. We go to MotoGP and then suddenly it was, I'm too heavy to make the Bridgestones work. And he was struggling for grip for most of his time in MotoGP. That was a, a constant issue. And then he comes to World Superbikes and last weekend he's talking in terms of all these other riders can make the SCX tire work. It's a 10 lap tire with so much more grip. It's worth three or four tenths of a second a lap. And they're allowed to use that in the feature races and I can't make it work because I'll just go through the tire. You know, he was talking in terms of we need to have a minimum weight for, for a bike and rider. We need to make sure the SCX tire can only be used during a feature length race. Now, it's worth saying as well, Scott didn't venture into this territory until he was asked about it. And then again, like I said, he speaks freely, he talks his mind, and he was saying his opinion on it. But once he started talking about these other riders can use the SEX and I can't, I was just brought back to 2012 and 2013 whenever I first met him and he was complaining about all those factors in Moto2. And, you know, Scott wasn't complaining about anything whenever he was winning in Hareth, whenever he was able to get to the front and, you know, race really smart in Phillip Island to come away with three podiums. He wasn't complaining too much whenever it was working for him. But we went to Portimao. He struggled for front grip in Portimao. He struggled for grip throughout two rounds in Aragon. And like all riders, he has to find a reason for it. The reason for it isn't, oh, I'm suddenly slow. The reason for it is there's got to be some something else. And the problem with that is the SEX tire is a genuine, it's a huge step you can make with that tire. It's three or four tenths of a second a lap. If you're able to use that and make it last, you're able to do what Rinaldi did in race one, and that's just run away from the field. But if you're not able to make it last, you're at a big penalty. And in your mind, you're thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm racing here with one hand behind my back. And that's what Scott was clearly thinking all the way through the weekend. After race one, he talked about Oh, Rinaldi can use that SCX tire and he's out there on a Sunday ride with his mates. He's not having to push hard and I'm having to push so hard, ride so aggressively to make up for that difference. And he was so fixated on the riders that could use that tire 
that it just seemed that he forgot he's not racing those guys. Fair enough, like they're out in track with him, but he's racing against Jonathan Ray. They're the only riders in the title fight. So what Rinaldi's doing is irrelevant. It's obviously going to be tough because he's on the same bike as you. But if he's able to use that tire and make it last, fair play to him. Johnny wasn't using the SCX tire. So that's where, for me, Scott was a little bit... He was a little bit focused on the wrong areas. And that's where I think his team probably should have done a better job just to get him focused up on what was actually important. Uh, The crash in race one, he clearly just ran out of grip, but he had suffered quite a few times already in that race. He was trying to keep Bautista behind them and crashes happen. You know, like I'm not going to, I'm not going to criticize a rider in that sort of situation because it's also his first crash of the season. You know, he's had a few in like practice sessions or super pools or whatever, but like nothing in a race. So you can't really criticize him much for that crash. Obviously, if he had been able to score a podium or fourth place, he's coming away with 13 or 16 points. Championship looks a little, looks a lot better at that stage but for me Scott just seemed like he was he was racing from behind from the moment that we started talking to him on Friday mm, yeah yeah um, yeah just looking through his results from the year here and I mean it, it's impressively consistent for Scott overall with the exception of that that crash in, in race one uh, last weekend but uh, but yeah it's uh, it's interesting interesting perspective yeah and Scott's a great rider like talent was never an issue for him whenever he was in MotoGP there was always other factors that were the problem he went to BSB last year and he was relaxed he was calm he had pressure on his shoulders because if he didn't win that was that was it but he went out he won the championship he was smart he knew the tracks to attack on I think I wouldn't want to say he was a bit naive coming to World Superbikes but I think it's easy for a lot of people to underestimate just how good Johnny Ray is to underestimate how good some of the other riders are that even though you'll be able to beat them over the course of a season if you're Scott Redding on a factory Ducati you're going to be forced to fight with them and you know I think that maybe that was something that could have taken him a little bit by surprise particularly this weekend when it's someone like Rinaldi that I'd, I'd really be surprised if Scott was thinking to himself at the start of the season I've got to worry about Michael Rubin Rinaldi mm-hmm. I still think you have to look at the, at Scott season as a whole and say he's doing a pretty impressive job first year in the championship new team obviously it's a it's a pretty good bike but um, you know the fact that he's even pushing Jonathan Ray I think um, is maybe ahead of what I was expecting um, just you know as someone that observes World Superbike a bit further back from from where you are but um, but yeah we shall see and um, obviously Barcelona uh, is the next race up Steve for, for World Superbikes in two weeks time and uh, there was a test there back in when was that uh, July was it? Yeah the start of July start of July and he was pretty quick there he has plenty of experience there yeah, like it's it's that thing with Scott that it's no surprise whenever he's at the front because he's got the talent. He he works an awful lot harder now than he did at times during his Grand Prix career. He works in a good direction. He's got Giovanni Crupi, a crew chief that he trusts a lot, that knows the bike. He's had a year on a superbike. He's had a year on Pirelli tires. He knows electronics. You know, it's not a big surprise to see him do what he's doing, and. Yeah, he's had a he's had a really good year. Catalonia is going to be crucial for him. He needs to come away from there with wins. The long straight's going to help Ducati, but we saw in the test that Kawasaki's made a step forward, and we saw over the last few rounds as well. Kawasaki's made a big step forward in terms of how they're able to manage the tire in the heat. So that's going to make it interesting in the Catalan rounds. And you know, I think that's the round that's going to dictate everything for Scott because when we get to Magni Core, that's a track where Toprak's going to be mega. Johnny's always good there. 
you know, there's going to be other riders at the front. Van der Mark's been able to hit the front there as well. So, you know, I think that means that Mag- uh, Catalonia is going to be probably the pivotal round of the season. So World Superbike's first visit to the circuit of Barcelona in two weeks' time will certainly be a pivotal one. And uh, we've touched on this a little bit already, Steve, but uh, still quite a few seats open in the uh, in terms of the rider market in World Superbikes, which is maybe a bit of a, a surprise considering if we look at MotoGP, most of the doors are more or less shut. Uh, but we have a few... Uh, a few listeners' questions, Daniel Humphreys being one of them. Also, we have uh, Owen at Xenoland101, who are both asking uh, for you to talk a little bit more in detail about Michael Rubin Rinaldi. And, well, does this latest performance mean that he's likely to be a, a factory Ducati rider next year? You think that that's the case? What repercussions would that have in terms of Chaz Davies and, well, where he would likely go? Well, it's like what me and Gordon were talking about last week is that it makes a lot of sense to keep Rinaldi where he is for another year. But on the other hand, Ducati's paid Chaz Davis an awful lot of money over the years to be a world champion. He's been able to win a lot of races. But Rinaldi's now won as many races on the V4R as Chaz Davis. So maybe Ducati look at it and say, you know what, we can save quite a bit of money and we've got a young Italian. Everything can look pretty rosy for you if you've got that on your bike in Italy. And uh, it could be a case of this could be the end of the line for Chaz. Chaz spoke at the start of the Aragon weekends about having other options available. And maybe he's going to have to explore them because he, uh, from all accounts, there, there is an offer on the table or discussions have been going on with Ducati, but nothing signed yet. Rinaldi's coming in w- with momentum. If Rinaldi goes in to uh, Catalonia and does well, it really does make it very difficult for Chaz. And I think as much as anything else for 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 me, for observers in World Superbikes, I think we'd all love to see Chaz somewhere else as well. You know, be we've seen him obviously he's raced Aprilias, he's raced BMWs, he's been at Ducati for a long time. But I I've said all along that I'd love to see him on the Honda now because it's got a really good engine and typically that engine style works really well for heavy braking and being aggressive on corner entry. We don't see that from Haslam or from Bautista, but we could see it from someone like Davis. And uh, that bike's improving all the time. It could be an interesting option, but then it comes down to whether or not Chaz wants to leave the confines of Ducati. You get, you get very accustomed to where you are. And that's where I think the next weekend is now really important for Chaz. Right, right. So is the, the Honda genuine possibility and also what about Yamaha because uh, we still haven't seen them announce a replacement for the departing Michael Vandermark well the Honda is an option until they sign Leon Haslam Haslam's still waiting for confirmation on that so if you're Honda and you've got an option between Chaz Davis that's been a perennial title contender when the bike's been good underneath him or Haslam it might be a decision that they have to make and that could be interesting in the Sabin Gordon uh, recorded the Patreon show just for our Patreon subscribers where we talk a lot about the rider market and we speak to Eugene Laverty about his options at the minute but when we were talking during that we were also talking about what happens at Yamaha and Yamaha it would be outside the norm for them to go and hire someone like Chaz because they've been bringing riders through younger riders all the way over the last few years so You've got someone like Andrea Locatelli that's won nine Supersport races in a row. He's going to win the World Championship. Do you try and get him onto a Superbike next year? I've heard rumours that in America, Cambobier has a clause in his contract that says if he wins the title, 
he comes to World Superbikes. When I talk to Yamaha people in the paddock, they've all said, no, that's not the case. But potentially, if you're someone like GRT Yamaha and Yamaha USA come in and say, we'll finance quite a big portion of this, maybe that's the way for Bobier to come over if he wants to come now. And, and certainly the indications from America are that he's finally willing to leave America and comes to the world stage. But he's in that uh, pretty tricky position of a lot of people in the world superbike paddock are looking at it that they've been chasing him for years and he's always turned them down. So now he's almost like the good looking girl at the dance. What happens to her? Does she always go home with someone, Neil? <laughs> I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> we'll have to we'll have to we'll have to bring Jensen into that call. He's he's definitely the man for that. Yeah, oh David, yeah, David's probably the man to ask about. He's got that the hat. As well. Exactly. He's got the hat, got the double glasses. Um yeah, interesting. Okay, so uh, we'll end the uh we'll end the, the rider market discussion now. If you want to hear more on this subject, it's uh, it's our time to to push our Patreon page because uh, for as little as three dollars a month you can get some added benefits and some extra special exclusive content just for you and uh, one of those is uh, well Steve's latest podcast recorded with Gordon Ritchie which I uh, fully recommend you catch up with $3 a month Paddock Pass podcast or patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast yeah um, okay so moving swiftly on Steve uh, another couple of interesting things from from Aragon 1 and I guess Aragon 2 as well I, I would kind of like you to talk a little bit about the struggles of well two factories that well one has had a really good year so far and then the other one has not so much, but we'll maybe start with Yamaha because I think maybe even coming into Aragon, you could have considered a top rack Rasgari Oglu as one of the, the championship challengers. Um, and it hasn't, it just didn't really work for him uh, at Aragon. Um, Yamaha didn't have a, a terrible weekend with uh, Mickey van der Mark by, uh, by any regards, but it wasn't quite what we were seeing at the start of the year where top rack was challenging Ray and Redding regularly at the front. Yeah, and I think it's one of those situations where you've got a lot of factors that go into it. Vandermark and Toprak have never been particularly great in Aragon. If you think back to the last few years when uh, it was Vandermark and Lowe's on the Yamahas, it was generally Alex that was out in front in Aragon. This year, again, we saw Vandermark was you know top five runner. It wasn't a bad track for him. I think that it's been overblown in terms of this was a disaster for Yamaha. Vandermark came away with podium in the Super Bowl race for Aragon one and top fives and five of the six races. So it wasn't it wasn't too bad for him. But Top Rack has always struggled in Aragon. His his style doesn't look like it gels with the track. You look at places like Magni Core where you're really able to get the bike on the angle, slide into places and be really aggressive. That suits his style. Aragon is really about trying to be a little bit conservative, focus on putting together six or seven corners. And it's not about trying to really just rag the bike. So that doesn't suit Top Rack. They made some improvements for Top Rack over the course of the two rounds, but he was still a lot further back than I think someone just watching from the outside would have expected. But as I said, I didn't really expect Top Rack to do all that much in Aragon. So again, it comes down to what's your expectations for someone and that really clouds what you think then of the weekend. I think a lot of people probably thought, oh, well, Top Rack's just, he's found us. The Yamaha's great. He's going to be able to fight everywhere. Whereas really what we saw after the two Aragon rounds is that the two riders are very different. They're only split by 10 or 15 points in the championship now. And I think that a little bit of the shine has gone off top rack. And probably people are now just remembering that, oh yeah, actually, Vandermark's a pretty good rider. And I think that got forgotten about at the start of the year just because he didn't quite manage to get the podiums in Australia. Top rack 
you know, just had that little bit of an edge or, you know, just a bit more prominence maybe just from, you know, what we see on social media where he's doing endos or wheelies or whatever. And I think that might have just clouded things a little bit. But, you know, Vandermark's still a quality rider and in Aragon he showed that he had a turn of speed on top rack pretty much the whole way through. He was a lot of the time 10 seconds up the road from top rack in Aragon one. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, maybe not the uh, the total disaster as uh, as you were saying. That was a uh, first build for Yamaha, but I guess when you get used to seeing them fighting at the front, as we did at Phillip Island then at Hareth, and you maybe expect them to be just a bit further forward. But uh, I guess that's just another a thing we're seeing in MotoGP, a thing we're seeing here. You know, if you have a bit of a bogey track, it just it costs you so much because well, what six races at one track where it would normally be three. I mean, that's uh, your 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 weaknesses are going to be. Uh, basically exaggerated quite a bit and uh, that's just the nature of this season in uh, in 2020 um, another factory I'd like to talk about BMW I mean, what was going on there at uh, Aragon Steve because I mean it was a, just a disastrous time for Tom Sykes we saw one really good ride from uh, from Eugene Laverty I think it was fighting through in race one managed to uh, score his best performance of the year eighth place his first top 10 finish of uh, 2020 but uh, that was after a disastrous first round at Aragon where I think he had brake failure crashed on the, the, the sighting lap was it yeah one of the races and yeah things just have, haven't really been going well there what, what's what's up at BMW well, whenever you were talking about two manufacturers with disastrous weekends, definitely one of them did have disastrous weekends because BMW, they just didn't have the pace. They didn't, there was nothing really to look at from those few weekends where you thought like BMW's made this massive step forward. Aragon won, Sykes crashed in the Super Bowl session, which then puts him down the field. He did all right in one of the races to be in the battle for decent, you know, top tens in uh, race two in Aragon won. But uh, like, if Tom's not starting at the front, it's very difficult to see him really recovering. Um, Aragon one was probably one of the worst weekends Eugene's ever had. That brake failure in the Super Bowl in race one, obviously, was then followed by a penalty for having work done on the bike after the three minute board. So race one was a write off. The rest of the weekend was a struggle. They went to Aragon two, and they felt like they'd made a step. And uh, definitely race one, we saw that from Eugene. He was able to finish inside the top 10. Sykes was just behind them as well. But on Sunday, Sykes had a sensor issue. So he retired before the race even started in race two. And I think it's that sort of thing that has dogged them over the course of the the season so far. And they've made steps with the bike, but not enough steps. It's too competitive now. And that's where like Eugene talks about it in, in that Patreon interview where he talks about the struggle that he's had trying to develop the bike and make it work in different ways. But World Superbikes right now is so competitive. You've got five manufacturers. They're all putting in a lot of effort. Honda's made a big step forward. You've got uh, satellite bikes that are doing well, whether it's Rinaldi or you know, in the Yamahas with Loris Baz. So it, it is very difficult to get yourself into the top 10. Yeah, yeah, we certainly saw that. Well, we've seen that all year. Um, but I mean, I remember listening to you and Gordo speak at uh, in Australia last year, at the start of last year. And, you know, Sykes was looking super competitive there in the, the bike's first appearance since BMW returned. And you were thinking, wow, they've got a really good base here, but they just haven't seemed to kick on. And is that just a, is that just a consequence of the, the added depth and field this year? Or is there something else going on within the, within the team or, or, you know, within BMW? Is there something, you know, flawed with the machine itself? I think that there's clearly issues with the bike that they're trying to figure out that they're trying to make steps with. 
and to make it definitely more user friendly. I think it, it's clearly a great bike over a single lap for Tom, but it's not a great bike over race distance. I think when you look back to last season, there's also that expectations. What what was your expectation for it? It wasn't very high. Whereas in year two, it's naturally there's a higher expectation, but the championship is more competitive now. So they're making some progress, but so is everyone else. And to move away from BMW, Steve, we can uh, take a look at a factory that in some respects seems to be on the up, um, Honda, getting their first podium since uh, their return to World Superbike in an official capacity with uh, Alvaro Bautista at Aragon 1, Leon Haslam, fourth place, race two at Aragon 2. Bautista was up fighting for the podium in both race one and race two at Aragon 2, and unfortunately crashed out, I think, on both occasions. But Definite progress there. Those guys are looking pretty good now. Yeah, Honda's made a big step forward. They've done an awful lot of testing in Aragon. Before we went to Aragon 1, they'd done eight days testing there from the end of last season until the start of the weekend. So they've done eight days testing. They've had six days on track as well at races. So, you know, if they were going to be competitive anywhere, they were going to be competitive in Aragon. And uh, Bautista, we know, goes really well there. His style suits the track perfectly. But he was able to make that bike work all the way through both weekends. And that was really impressive from Honda. They've clearly made a big step forward. And uh, now the question becomes, can they do that in Catalonia? Can they do that at Magni Corps? And can they do it in Estoril? But uh, certainly it showed the potential of the bike because we were able to see, once again, the engine's really strong. It's got good top speed. It's got good acceleration. And uh, they were able to hook up full races now. And uh, for Bautista to get onto the podium on that bike was really impressive it was unfortunate that he had a couple of crashes over the two weekends because both of them were where he said he was just absolutely on the limit and having to ride at that limit just to be able to stay in contention but it does show what the potential is yeah it's pretty decent for the first year of that new fireblade and we're obviously seeing in bsb how how strong a package that is i mean this is a, a sign of things to come perhaps yeah i think that it's pretty clear that the honda's got an awful lot of potential and definitely there's an awful lot of riders that will be very interested in getting onto that bike and that's where it becomes interesting to see exactly what Honda end up doing next season for Haslam it was crucial to be able to come away with at least one really good result he did that by finishing fourth in race two but we saw him battling it out with lots of other bikes throughout the course of two weekends and uh, you know it seemed that himself and Alex Lowe's in particular were just constantly on track together and uh, hasn't was able to come out on top in a few of those battles and that bodes well for Leon. And you mentioned Alex Lowe, Steve. Um, obviously, it was a, a pretty difficult second uh, race weekend at Aragon for him because he was hit by a bout of sickness. Um, really was not in good shape whatsoever. Um, but uh, I don't think we should underestimate the, uh, the powers of reserves that he has that basically allowed him to finish what? sixth twice and then fifth in race two. I mean, that in the, the kind of heat that we had in Aragon, that is uh, it's no small feat. No, it was unbelievably impressive because he had gastroenteritis and a pretty bad infection that was clearly making him suffer an awful lot. He said that he hadn't really slept for, well, since the start of the week. So from Monday or Tuesday onwards. So he was getting a few hours sleep and then he was awake for the rest of the night. He was fever. He had bad stomach and real struggle for him so just to even think about having to go out on track was always going to be tough 
But for him, he tried to conserve as much energy as he could. He sat out one of the practice sessions. He kept his laps to a minimum. He'd seen him go out for you know, two laps at a time, two flying laps at a time, come back into the pits. He wasn't trying to he wasn't trying to do too much too soon. He was trying to make sure he conserved his energy as much as possible. And then in the races, to come away with three top six finishes, six six five in the three races, that was impressive because I think he scored pretty much the same points as Van der Mark and Toprak. That's who he's battling in the championship with. So it ended up being a really good Aragon too, even with all, all that illness. I think it's easy for people to underestimate what riders have to go through. But I think anyone that's had a stomach bug is able to contemplate what it's like to then have to get on a bike for 35 minutes and just know that no matter what you do, you have to keep going. Like Anyone with the flu knows how difficult it is to try and get out of bed so imagine what he had to go through for those three races yeah impressive stuff from alex lowe's no doubt about it and uh, what's what's super bike 2020 really uh exciting as ever we have uh, well 36 points now covering the top two but then the, the fight as you said steve for third place is uh is pretty spicy as well just 20 points covering uh top rack chas davies michael van der mark Ruben rinaldi and alex lowe's so uh yeah lots more to see there in the three rounds that we still have to come uh barcelona magnicor and Estoril to finish the season so well, so like discussion is uh, over for today. We've got a little ten-minute segment that we're going to uh, we're going to finish on, and we're going to discuss what's happening at Mizano or what is likely to happen at Mizano this weekend. Anyone that uh, has watched even just one session of MotoGP this year, I think, will be aware that uh, well, make a bet on who's going to win at your peril because it's uh, it's been as wild and unpredictable a season as I think anything that we can both uh, we can both remember in our lifetimes. Um, it's likely to be something quite similar this weekend, Steve, do you think? Well, you're the man to ask, Neil. You know, you're going to be out in Italy, but uh, for me, watching from the outside, uh, MotoGP's just been fantastic this year. You certainly wouldn't fancy being, uh, being a man trying to make money on the gambling for MotoGP at the minute because it's just, it's the biggest gamble I've ever seen. We've seen so so many surprise results. Like, I think coming into this season, could anyone have imagined KTM winning a race, never mind winning two? Could anyone have imagined what Brad Binder was able to do at the start of his GP career? So definitely make your uh, make your uh, predictions at your own peril for this weekend. But like, what are you looking forward to this weekend? Um, yeah, it's, I think it's it's going to be really interesting to see whether, whether Yamaha can get uh, back on track after two pretty disastrous weekends in, uh, in Austria. That was obviously total bogey circuit for them probably the worst possible layout there could be for Yamaha if you designed a MotoGP circuit Mizano last year we saw Vinales on pole Vinales third Quadraro fighting with Marquez until the last lap historically this has been a, a Yamaha circuit and I'm pretty excited to see whether you know the kind of crazy conditions that we had at Brno and then the, the the sort of bad layout in Austria that was just like a an exception because you know Yamaha in general in preseason testing and at Jerez have obviously been super impressive. Um, so whether they can get back on track, let's uh, let's see. I mean, whether Quartararo will be a more relaxed and happy figure than what we saw at Austria too. That's also something I think that uh, should be observed. We've obviously got a new track surface at Mizano for uh, for the race weekends this year. There's been quite a lot of uh, of private testing at the circuit, um, notably by KTM and Aprilia, but also I think uh, Ducati's test riders have been there. Um, yeah, it'll that'll be another thing to to 
to watch. I think Michelin have brought an extra uh, front tire for the races there, so there'll be four front tires to choose from, which will be uh, which could add um, a bit of uh, topsy turvyness to the whole thing. Um, so yeah, let's see how it goes. Just about the tires then as well, Neil. Like obviously in superbikes we have it where riders have a lot of options for their tires, and typically riders complain at the end of Friday practice saying I have too many choices because I want to be able to focus on being able to get the most out of one tire for the races. MotoGP's at that stage right now where it's so competitive that you can't really spend Friday trying out a load of different tires to see which one clicks for you on the track. It becomes really important, like what we saw with KTM in Czech Republic. It becomes really important to know the tires you're going to use in advance in that sort of situation. So if you've been able to test it really is a big advantage. Yeah, yeah, and we saw that, uh, well, as I mentioned, KTM and Aprilia testing in, uh, in Misano in July. Um, I think they've been there quite recently as well with Danny Pedrosa. Um, and judging by the KTM's ability and potential at Jerez, as well as the results that they scored at Bernou in, in Austria, I fully expect uh, Paul Espargo to be up there. I think he had a seventh place there last year. So already with what was a very difficult bike in 2019, KTM were already you know, in the, the good side of the top 10, um, you know, Oliveira, Binder, let's see if they'll be there in, in, in Mizano 1. But um, yeah, I'd fully expect uh, Paul Spargo to be there. And then obviously, there's a big question mark about Ducati because it's been a bit of a mixed bag, the uh, the Mizano circuit for for Ducati in recent years. The, the Vizioso had one of his best MotoGP race wins there in 2018, but last year was just an unmitigated disaster. But then a lot of that was due to the kind of deteriorating track surface that was there. And that's obviously been, uh, it's been altered. Uh, Piro, Michele Piro, Ducati's test rider, has um, has tested, obviously, at Misano quite a lot since it's been resurfaced. And Davizioso is kind of adamant that it seems that that is going to help the bike quite a lot. But just the effect that this new rear tire um, construction that they have for this year, how that affects him, I, I, I still think... You know, Davizioso himself is quite some way from finding an optimum setup for that. And um, well, there were some there were some different speculations and ideas why he wasn't so fast in the second Austria race. I think Mitchellum were saying that he was um, or his team was experimenting with with different tire pressures, and they got that wrong, and that's why he wasn't able to fight for the race win in in uh, Austria too. Um, but obviously, with this being a tight, fairly twisty circuit. Um, you know, he's going to need to feel absolutely optimum with that, with that rear tire to be able to to be able to fight with the Yamahas and the Suzukis, which were obviously pretty sorted in terms of handling. We're obviously going to have back to back rounds in Mizano as well, like we had in Hareth, like we had in Austria. But what's your thoughts on having races at the same track on back to back weekends? Because we've seen big changes from one weekend to the next in MotoGP. Yeah, yeah, um, we have. We've seen certain riders stand still we've seen other guys take massive leaps from one race weekend to the next um i mean i think it's a it's it's a necessity in these strange times that we have in 2020 obviously this is not a regular year and we have to try and minimize the amount of travel as much as possible so it makes logistical sense completely however just from a professional point of view and and maybe watching i think when you get to the second race weekend you know friday seems a bit pointless um you could maybe even do away with uh, with the friday on the second race weekend in my opinion because most people have a fair idea of what they've of what or where they should be 
you know, by the end of the first race weekend. And it's only if you've been completely lost that you uh, that you see um, you see people, you know, really happy to take on the, the second race weekend. So I don't know. Um, Do you work for Yamaha, Neil, where you're just worried about engine mileage and just get rid of the Fridays? <laughs> Well, yeah, of course, that is something else to consider as well, because uh, Yamaha have their have their have their issues with the uh, with their 2020 engine with in terms of reliability. I mean, um, I'm not sure exactly what the uh, the forecast will be this weekend, but Yamaha did say that it was the the really punishing track temperatures and and ambient temperatures which put their engines under such dramatic strain at Jerez back in July. Obviously, Misano temperatures won't be as high as Andalusia in the middle of July, but still this time of year, still pretty high, you know, venturing towards 30 track temperatures, maybe, you know, close to 50, maybe even higher. So uh, that'll be something to keep an eye on as well. Also, um, you know, Suzuki. I mean, I was so, so impressed with Joanne Mir in Austria. Alex Rins to a lesser extent as well, um, you know, crashing out of race one there um, and maybe not having a, a great race too, but Joanne Mir just was riding like an absolute, well, future champion in some respects a guy that you think really could could um, go on and take the next step Suzuki had a bit of a tough weekend at, at uh, Misano last year but that bike this year looks so sorted uh, in sort of every department so yeah Mir and Rins just seeing how, how far up they'll be as well that's something to what about from a personal perspective then isn't it as well Neil nine races in 11 weeks it's a big ask it is a big ask Steve yeah I'm kind of mentally trying to to prepare myself god knows what it's like if you're a if you're a technician and you're a you're a rider and your you know your performance is well i mean it's it's a whole different ball game from the kind of pressures that you know you or i face whenever we go to a race weekend but yeah tremendous pressures neil <laughs> tremendous pressures don't underestimate exactly but it's yeah it's going to be a pretty busy time i don't think moto gp has ever had a schedule like this where it's nine races in well 11 race weekends three triple headers with uh, what two weekends off after each triple header? I mean, it's going to be it's going to be pretty tough. Um, but let's see. I mean, the good thing is that the racing across all three classes is so good and so tight and competitive that um, even if you do have that sense of jet deja vu at the second weekend at the same track, the weekend is the racing is good enough to uh, to basically make up for the fact that you're essentially watching the kind of same thing happen for the second weekend running well let's talk about the smaller classes then as well is anyone going to be able to catch albert arenas it's a good question um yeah if they want to start doing it they, they better start pretty quickly uh, i think what we saw in the second race in austria was uh, would certainly give his championship rivals a lot of heart because arenas was a little bit off color just compared to Compared to what he had been like at Brno in Austria, one where he was so commanding and so strong in those final laps, they just upped the pace in the uh, in the second race in Austria. And uh, guys that have been a bit subdued so far this year, Tony Arbolino, Celestino Vietti, um, guys that you know I think can still push themselves into the championship fight if they get their act together. Um, you know they could they could make it quite interesting, um, but certainly. Guys like Agora, McPhee, Suzuki, and then Arbolino and Vietti. I mean, yeah, they need to start beating Arenas quickly. And the thing with Arenas is that so far this year, it is a bit of an outlier. He has shown tremendous potential in the past. The year that he was fighting in the FIM Junior World Championship, he was fighting the likes of Mir, Bulaga, you know, really high-quality younger riders that have gone on to carve out good careers for themselves. However... He's never been that consistent 
Uh, it's basically only towards the end of last year and this year that we've seen consistency. Put him under pressure. His rivals must be thinking, put him under some pressure and just see how he reacts because, you know, nine races is still a long way to go. And, uh, well, he's ridden, he's ridden brilliantly so far this year. But, um, yeah, I would say it's by no means a, a foregone conclusion. Yeah, I think when you look at the Moto3 class, there's always been those outlier seasons for champions, whether you're looking at Cortese in 2012 or Danny Kent, even Brad Binder. Binder went into his title winning campaign and that was last chance saloon for him. So for a lot of riders, it really is a case of using your experience to win that championship. Some of those guys have been able to go on and do a lot of other successful things, such as Binder obviously being a, a factory MotoGP rider winning a race. Cortese's at least been able to go on and win a Supersport World Championship. But uh, for Albert Arenas, this could be that one glorious opportunity to try and win a world championship. Yeah, yeah. And he's uh, he's been making some noises since Austria that um, Moto2 is absolutely his priority. I think he's one of the older riders in Moto3 by now. I think he's uh, 23 years old. Um, but yeah, I would fully expect Arenas to be stepping up to Moto2 next year, possibly with the same team. Um, that certainly makes sense. And um, yeah, this is probably his last chance to win the Moto3 title. So... And Neil, obviously, Moto2 as well, I think it's fair to say Moto2's been a sleeper class for the last few years, or at least a put it asleep class for the last few years, but uh, that's all changed this year. It's, it seems like a very different season. We've got a lot of really good riders at the front. We've had really good battles. Times are as close as ever in Moto2, but the races have been an awful lot closer. Been closer, yeah. We've yet to see like a real barnstorming, no-holds-barred type of race, everything that we've seen so far, I think, has been a bit follow your leader, certainly from the resumption of the championship at, at Jerez. Um, but that's not to say we haven't had some exciting races, some intriguing races. The last race that we had was obviously very interesting with uh, Marco Bezzecchi, um chasing down Jorge Martin, and then there was obviously some controversy with the track limits after that. Um, but, um, yeah, Moto2 is, is, is wide open this year. Uh, we've got uh, the top five riders covered by 22 points. We've got the top six covered by 28. Even, you know, Sam Lowe's in sixth place could still, uh, you know, have a say in where the championship goes. But, um, yeah, I think Marini, Bastianini, Martin, they've all looked super good at certain points this year. Even Bezeki recently has, uh, has really come into his own. Uh, and Nagashima, you know, after seeming to go off the boil for a couple of rounds, managed to recover and get a good fourth place last time on it so yeah i mean it's 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 all to play for um and you know the, there are heavy rumors linking both marini and bastianini to moto gp next year um you wonder whether having that sort of up in the air is maybe having some effect on them you know bastianini had two pretty disastrous races in austria um so yeah i think it's it's all to play for in moto 2 all to play for moto gp and moto 3 as well and that pretty much brings us to the end of our discussion in this week's uh, Paddock Pass podcast brought to you live from a hotel room in Barcelona where Stephen English is uh, calling his residence in the uh, the upcoming weeks. No no return trips to, to the, the Emerald Isle in the, the coming weeks for you, Steve? It, it's hard to believe in a season when uh, there's only half the amount of World Superbike races as normal that I'll end up being a tax exile. But, you know, this is what happens. Thank you very much, dear listener, as always, for joining us on the Paddock Pass podcast. Um, it's always uh, very important that you follow us on our social media channels on Twitter and Paddock Pass Pod, Facebook.com forward slash Paddock Pass Podcast. And as I think we mentioned earlier in the show, we do have a Patreon page set up where you can get some really interesting, juicy, exclusive content for as little as $3 a month. 
how about that? And if you are indeed a Patreon subscriber, go and check out our latest exclusive podcast to the Patreon page subscribers where Steve and Gordon Ritchie talk about some interesting little tidbits in the World Superbike Riders Market as well as an exclusive interview with World Superbikes Eugene Laverty. So go ahead and check that out. $3 a month you can get access to that content for. Anyway, we have a pretty busy schedule coming up unless you haven't noticed. Nine MotoGP races in the next 11 weeks. We've got three World Superbike runs in that time as well. We're going to be coming at you every week from now until the end of November with uh, fresh podcasts. Be sure to keep up with us on uh, Apple Podcasts and uh, different things like that. Yeah, Spotify and all the rest of it. Yeah, make sure that you uh, you rate us, you leave a wee review. That helps other people find the show. So we'll be coming back with another podcast this time next week. Until then, speak to you soon.